0: Hello everyone and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. The thing that I am probably most proud of in terms of creating Saturn Returns is the community that we have built and I love hearing from you guys where you're listening to the podcast, how it's impacted your day what episodes resonate with you, so I thought it would be nice to check in with someone from the community, so we're going to be hearing a little something from Katie. Hello Saturn Return friends, my name's Katie, I'm a gardener from Sheffield, I'm just about to tune in to the latest episode of the podcast whilst I'm at work, I think I'll be doing some weeding in one of the flower beds, um, because that's when I enjoy listening most and I can reflect on life and keep my mind busy while my hands do the same.
1: Enjoy. I'd always really felt like the odd one out, like I was the only one who didn't want to have kids. But then reaching my early 40s, I began to notice in my peer group, there were actually lots of other women without kids. And then zooming out even further, looking at this global shift in the birth rate, well, this is women everywhere, which is completely and radically reshaping our societies around the world.
0: Today, I'm thrilled to be reunited with one of the first guests we've ever had on the show, and that is the wonderful Ruby Warrington. Ruby is an author, a speaker. She is a thought leader in the wellness space. And she came on season one of the podcast to discuss sobriety. She was one of the biggest influences in my life on my own Sober Curious journey. She is the person that coined the term. So we discuss this in this episode and conversation. But we also get into a very big subject and that is around motherhood. Ruby has just released her latest book called Women Without Kids and it discusses her journey and reason for opting out of motherhood and I feel that many of you guys listening are kind of at that stage where you're debating whether that's something that's right for you so I thought that this was a really important conversation to have as a 35 year old woman I am definitely feeling that societal pressure the sort of you know biological clock chat and it's tough it's really tough to manage all the things that we are expected to So this conversation really opens up what that path looks like, perhaps the path less traveled, and the joy and the purpose that can also come with it, but also of course the challenges that Ruby has gone through and especially the process of writing this book. So I hope you enjoy this very thought-provoking conversation because I loved having it.
2: Ruby. Hi Kaggy Welcome back. Indeed. I think you were either the first or the second guest okay. ever of Saturn Returns. Yes. So that was back pre-pandemic when you came over to my flat. It A lot must has have changed. been 2018
1: or 2019. 2019. 2019. End of 2019. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that was I guess after, so both of my previous books have been out by that point because they came out in 2017 and 2018
2: yeah because I think when I discovered you it was really around the sober curious stuff and I actually didn't realize how into astrology you were and I was I was speaking because just to add a bit of context for the listeners or our audience we did a panel discussion last night for your new book and afterwards I was talking with Africa about it and the sort of stuff that you were talking about when you were talking about it was so ahead of its time Mm. with the astrology with the Sober Curious, and now you're on this whole new venture and topic, which is women without kids. Mm -hmm. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about this book, that journey?
1: From the outside, they can seem like three quite different areas or quite different subjects, I suppose. Yeah. Material girl mystical world, introducing sort of mysticism and mystical practices in a modern context. Through sober curious, which is all about reframing your relationship to alcohol, through women without kids, but they for me represent this sort of journey that I've been on and chapters since, of your life certainly. and chapters of my life since age about thirty five, which is what comes after Saturn, the first Saturn returns, the first Saturn, Saturn square. Maturation, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was around the time that I started getting really interested in things like astrology. I just felt such a pull to know myself mm-hmm. better and to understand some of the more subconscious or unconscious motivations that had led to me making certain decisions. And I was just very aware that there was more to my life than met the eye. And so that was what led me into that sort of investigation. It was through getting really involved in those practices and doing, starting all of this kind of inner work, that I realized that the way I'd been using alcohol was not only unhealthy for me but that was actually blocking me from getting a really clear and full awareness of who I am and like honestly the root causes are some of the things that had been challenging and problematic for me so that was where sober curious came in
2: so which and came then, first so historic. material
1: girl mystical world was first mm-hmm. and it was through that sort of healing journey that a light was really shone on the way I was using alcohol and which this always,
2: was actually post your Saturn return yes so you weren't aware at that time no about any so what was the thing that kind of introduced you to that
1: world the mysticism piece yeah oh, well I'd always been I'd always been curious about astrology ever since I was a kid mm-hmm. I mean honestly I was working at the Sunday Times style magazine at the time and um I was really dissatisfied. This was my dream job. It was kind of like what I've been working towards since going to journalism school. It was like my dream job. And I just found myself really dissatisfied. And I was very upset with myself. I felt so ungrateful. Mm. This is like everything I've wanted. And yet I'm just not happy. Something's missing. And that was the pull. I decided like astrology just kept coming up for me. And I just knew there was something there for me. And I actually approached the the resident astrologer at the Sunday Times, Shelley von at the time, about mentoring me and teaching me astrology. So that was what really opened the doorway into that world. And I was, I guess it was around that same time I started questioning my drinking and I first got what I would go on to call these sober curious, right? I was questioning the role that alcohol played in my life, whether I was drinking too much, what was too much, what was I using it for, what was I getting out of it, were the highs really worth the lows, all of that sort of stuff that then led to, yeah, me coining this term sober curious. Yeah, I and mean, for,
2: for everyone that listens to this show, <laughs> they'll know that I use that term a lot, Right, and you were the one that came I, up indeed. with it, and it's amazing what a movement it's created, mm-hmm. you know, globally, Yes, and it's... You know, when was that actually released, that whole project? So that book,
1: Sober Curious, came out December 31st, 2018. And I always specify the date because I can't, is it a 2018 book or a 2019 book, depending what time zone you're in? Like, <laughs> um, But the Material Girl Mystical World had come out in the middle of 2017. So they were kind of those, they were sort of happening concurrently in a way. I'd started mm. hosting Sober Curious events in New York in 2016 as part of this kind of, yeah, personal development self-awareness journey that I'd, that I'd embarked on with my astrological studies yeah
2: because we can't we can't have you back and not talk about the sober curious thing of what course. was your relationship like to alcohol
1: now well what then? was it like then and what is it like now so then I was what well, I would always describe myself as an enthusiastic social drinker meaning i drank to socialize i didn't ever drink on my own um i didn't ever drink to drown my sorrows in fact if i was stressed or anxious i would stay away from alcohol i drank to have to dial up the fun and to relax and to have a release and to socialize and the london media scene is very boozy i mean you must have experienced it too mm-hmm. pretty much if i wanted every night of the week i could go out and drink for free which when you're not paying for alcohol it's very easy to develop quite a high tolerance quite quickly because you just keep topping it up. And you know, I, I could really hold my drink. I was one of those people who the, the morning after everyone would seem be like, but you didn't even seem like you were drunk because I didn't like nothing I'd ever felt I. Like. towards the end of my drinking career, I had a couple of nasty falls actually kind of messing around with friends right. that actually scared me a little bit. Were you aware when you were drinking? Yes. So I didn't work having
2: you didn't have blackouts or anything like that.
1: Very occasionally. I could probably even looking back now count on one hand the number of times I had like a actual what I would classify as a blackout, blackout or a brownout, which is kind of like where you remember flashes. But no. And I would never I never got in trouble from my drinking, you know. Never missed a day of work, never got into bad arguments with people, like all the typical things we think associate with problem drinking. I hadn't experienced those things. So it was very hard for me to think of my drinking as problematic even though in this kind of mini existential <laughs> crisis that hit around age 35, um, I was able to draw connections between the after, less less the drinking itself, but the after effects of my drinking and the sort of existential dis-ease that I was feeling. like Just this general dissatisfaction, wow. either very high anxiety or quite low depression. And a um, kind of disconnect. Yeah, exactly. And just... Uh, a dissatisfaction with my life just a sense that like there was more to life than this and I started to recognize that I was relying on alcohol to feel good my only release or experiences of joy came through drinking and that The level of drinking I was doing by that point would leave me feeling really terrible, like two, three day hangovers when I wouldn't drink. So because I never drank every day, never wanted to drink in the morning, again, didn't see it as a problem. And eventually I did go to a couple of AA meetings just because I'd been really questioning. I found myself being more and more preoccupied with it. My drinking was taking up more kind of headspace than I wanted it to be. But then when I got to AA I heard all of the classic kind of extreme stories and I thought well this isn't me. me. I don't think I'm an alcoholic so what am I? And that's when I started to question I suppose could there be more of a spectrum when it comes to alcohol use, alcohol misuse and what could I turn this thing that I'm doing which is questioning Mm -hmm. that and wanting to know more and wanting to investigate what's happening and Does anyone else feel this way? And honestly, as soon as I started talking, vocalizing, what had been a really private journey for, it was about four or five years that I'd been really internally wrestling with it and maybe had spoken to a couple of close friends. But um, once I started speaking to more people in my social circle about it or just bringing it up in conversation, it turned out that a lot of normal drinkers had similar questions to me about their Mm -hmm. drinking and were experiencing... A lot of the cognitive dissonance, honestly, around their drinking. It doesn't look like a problem, but it feels like a problem. That kind of thing.
2: I I know, and it's such (sighs) a powerful thing because it it felt very much at that time, it was this binary thing Mm -hmm. of you're AA or you're a normal drinker. Mm. And there wasn't really anything, Mm. no language for anyone in between. And that's why when I discovered your work and your podcast... I mean, no pun intended, but I binged the whole thing when I went to, <laughs> on my way to a party. And I just thought, this is the language I've been looking for and these are the people that I can relate to. Because mm-hmm. similar to you, I went to, I ended up in one AA meeting in LA and I just, I was very humbled by the whole experience. Mm. And it was a very sobering experience to mm. actually see and hear these experiences. But I definitely was like, this is not, this is not where I'm at. Yeah. So I think it's been just, you know transformational in my life and I, I I applaud you for creating something and having the courage to start having those conversations in a time where people weren't so much.
1: Yeah I feel like people were really ready for it though and that's yeah. what I realized quickly when like I said I and when I started decided to host a public facing event on it like 80 people turned up to the first event mm. and I had thought it was so out there and so weird and like I was the only normal drinker who was thinking this way but it became immediately obvious that people were really ready to just have a more nuanced conversation about addiction, you know? Did you feel that your sort of spiritual path and that whole aspect of your self was in conflict with your drinking? Yes, and that's sort of part, I I recognised that um, I really wanted to get more clarity Mm -hmm. on why I felt the way I did about certain things, why certain things were difficult for me on my family history, on my relationship history. And I recognized that in the aftermath of drinking, I just felt so disconnected. It was like all of the good work or all of the progress I've made in that area just felt like it had been completely rolled back. I completely And I was back that, to square yeah. one again. I was just like, I kept coming back to this phrase we use, getting out of it. And I was like, no, this is a time in my life when I wanna get deeper into it. I don't want to get out of it. And I recognized that getting out of it, even a couple of glasses of wine, even in, my, in a minor way, prevented me from staying in it and going mm. deeper. It's like there was only so deep I could go whilst I was still using alcohol to kind of take the edge off my uncomfortable experiences. And I yeah. think what I'd realized was that actually those uncomfortable, edgy, challenging places that we're sometimes invited into by life are where we get to grow, ultimately. And yeah. that when we take the edge off and we constantly shy away from that, with alcohol, it's such a common reason that people drink yeah. is just when anything gets a bit uncomfortable, It's an escape, Ooh, just have a drink. I was preventing myself from really going there. So this leads into the women without kids thing because a big part of what came up when I removed the alcohol and I was just like at the cold face of all the feelings all the time was just a lot of really uncomfortable feelings around family, Um, this big unanswered question that had kind of been in the background my whole life. Why did I never want to be a mother? I'd always felt quite comfortable in this knowing And it was sort of an unconscious knowing in a way that motherhood just wasn't something that I felt was in my path. I just didn't see myself as a mother. And yet there had always been this question, but why not? Because this is what women are supposedly built for. Mm -hmm. This is why we're here. Why do I not want that? And a lot of other people had asked me, why do you not want this? And I'd always just, I just don't. But I think I got to a point with this sort of newfound clarity about myself who I am why I am the way I am that I was really ready to actually try to answer that for myself first and foremost so yeah and this is, I think this is common actually for people who remove alcohol like there's a reason why when you go into therapy all they want to talk about is like your relationship with your mom and dad and like your family and stuff like this you know and I think that for a lot of people when they get sober for whatever reason there's a lot of there's often a lot of stuff there around family and our lineage and you know the the forces I suppose that have shaped us as individuals beginning in the home and so I think it's really common there's actually um a branch of AA that I am, am interested in um investigating further I started looking into it while I when I started researching this new book but I quickly realized that I wouldn't really have the time to properly do the work but it's called ACA which is adult children of alcoholics I mean my mum's not really a drinker at all my dad does drink I wouldn't necessarily say he's in the alcoholic category but alcohol's always been very much a part of his life but actually ACA extends to any kind of family dysfunction Mm -hmm. and it just feels to me it almost feels like oh this is the the real work of the 12-step programs like once you remove the substance or the behavior with these other programs what you get to is a lot of dysfunctional family stuff and were these things connected for you you mean um my family upbringing and my addictive tendencies
2: yeah or alcohol in the family the way you observed that and then your view on having kids or not having kids
1: in a roundabout way yes I think so Um, like I kind of touched on before I think alcohol is just a very common substance that people use not to feel their feelings and not to feel the uncomfortable stuff to shy away from the difficult challenging stuff and I think that what I've identified is that my family are very good at glossing over some of the more painful things and just kind of like making nice you know when actually if I really look in a very kind of clear sort of clear-eyed way at the relationships in my family particularly particularly actually like my parents relationships with their parents there's just a lot of dysfunction you know Mm. and not nothing overtly abusive um, or violent or anything like that but just it's really, it's quite hard to define because it's not stuff that we've, we ever speak about. It's more just a feeling tone, which is discomfort. And I think that um, growing up in a family like that, I never really experienced family as this warm, cozy place where I could be completely myself and feel held and nurtured and supported and loved unconditionally. Not that my parents, my parents are extremely loving and have been very supportive, but the feeling tone of the family in general is just quite uncomfortable, and I find that now when I visit with my family without any alcohol present,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the feeling is like tense. Something is tense. Something's held in, and I don't something's even I, don't even really know what it is because it mm. feels almost so ancient. Like it, pro- I think it probably goes back generations, and it's of just coloured how we are with each other. But having conscious awareness of it, which I've been able to do through not drinking through really looking at it, through the research I did for Women Without Kids. Because part of what I, one argument of many that I kind of make in the book, or one avenue, I suppose, of exploration is the extent to which not wanting to repeat certain family patterns can play into people's decisions about their own, the families they want to make for themselves. I think it's actually a really big, unspoken, unexplored area well, I think, to,
2: like you say, it takes so much conscious awareness to actually not just repeat and echo yes. the mistakes or the patterns of our parents.
1: Especially because so much of it has been wired into yeah. us pre, before we're verbal, before yeah. we have con- like true consciousness. So mm. it's almost like this is our, these are our factory settings. So the level of clarity <laughs> that you need to be able to see it happening in yourself and in those people who literally made you who you are, it's really challenging. And I don't think I could have done it without quitting drinking. And I'm so glad I'm able to see it now because only when we're able to actually see it, can we start to do what's the really hard work of changing the pattern, choosing a different action, going against the way we do things, disrupting it, because that can be really uncomfortable for us and for the other people involved. Ultimately, I think it's really important I've already been able to see the changes in the relationships i have with my closest family members and that is so it's just huge you know and i know it's going to have a huge ripple effect like throughout the family throughout all of our lives actually
2: was that a big contributing factor to you deciding not to have kids
1: Well, like I said, I kind of always had a sense that there were just other things I was going to do with my life. And I think for me, first and foremost, I just have a very curious, very highly analytical mind that is very suited to. Like my personality is just very suited to the vocation I've been able to pursue, which is journalism and writing. So I think on a basic like basic personality level, that's just I'm much more suited to that than I am to the vocation of parenthood. And when I think about what would I like family to look like, mm-hmm. I feel a real sense of kinship with my adult friends. You know, mm. with my husband. I mean, the interesting thing is because womanhood is so synonymous with motherhood, and we mm. really are raised as girls, particularly, to believe that this is our ultimate purpose, and that if we don't do this thing, we we're have not incomplete. only missed out, but we're in, somehow incomplete. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I tried so hard throughout my 30s to make myself want to be a mum. Really? And to talk myself into it. How did that look? I mean, it was very internal, yeah. I suppose. But, but what it was, was the kind of internal
2: narrative that was happening?
1: I suppose I internalized a lot of comments like, nobody ever feels ready Mm-hmm. You won't know how, how wonderful it is until you do it. Mm-hmm. There's never the right time. You've just got to go for it. These are the kinds of things that people will say. Yeah, people You're say nodding. That I all, think yeah. you probably heard <laughs> it. People, I'm sure people listening who've been in this situation, whether or not they you know feel they want to have children, but who are questioning, is it the right time? These are the kind of things that people say. And so I internalized a lot of that and would tell myself that often. It's not that you don't want children. Of course you do, because everybody does. You just... You just don't think it's the right time, but it's never the right time. (laughs) Or, um, so I really, really did try to make myself want to be a parent. And I think um, my husband had never wanted to either. And I do wonder if he had really Mm -hmm. been on that, like really wanted it, quite possibly we would have had a child. There was one time, I think I just turned 38, And we went to Australia to visit my friend on holiday. And we were in Sydney. We'd had a few drinks in the time when I was still sober curious, not sober, (laughs) not fully sober yet. And I just kind of was like, oh, God. And I think as well, there's that biological clock thing. There's the added pressure of like, well, the time's never right. But like the time's kind of got to be now because like time's running out. So, oh, my God, you just don't do it. And we were like, I really managed to be like, okay this is what we're going to do. Like when we get back to the UK, we're going to start trying and like, fuck it. This is like, fuck it. What else are we going to do with our lives? Like once in a lifetime, just got to do this thing. But by the time we got back to the UK, I was just like, no, there was just always, you know, when like something's a hundred percent, yes, it just feels irresistible almost. Mm -hmm. And when something's not quite a yes, it just feels like a it and was it's, that, that feeling means it's a no and that meant it was a no and i was like this is such a huge decision this is going ir- to irreversibly alter the trajectory of my life mm-hmm. and if it's anything less than 100% hell yes yes then it's a no and so for me that must mean that actually this is a no cuz
2: if you don't mind me asking when you came back from australia mm. and you were in this headspace of Right, I guess now's the time. Mm-hmm. You've got to go for it. All mm. of that stuff around you of people saying you're never going to be completely ready. And then you've got the sort of real aspect of time mm. and age and all of mm. these contributing factors. When you then said you got to a point where you're like, actually, it doesn't feel like a Yes. What was that like? What did that look like?
1: I think it was the prospect of having unprotected sex. Interesting. And I was just like, uh-uh, no. No. Yeah, so like instinctively you were like, yeah, no. no. I wow. don't even want to try and take the risk. Just no. And he was the same. He was the same. Yeah, I think he was probably quite relieved that I had decided no, no, actually no, because he never brought it up again. Or not, not never brought. We definitely thought talked about it again since then. Like it's something. This is the other thing. We got married when we were when I was twenty seven, which was quite young in our mm-hmm. my friendship group at the time. I was one of the first people to actually get married. People immediately were like, oh, so when are you starting a family? And I was just like, we're not. And it was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But um, yeah. he's like had, you are a family. But, but because other people were always asking us that question and because we were married and that's like what married people do. It was like we did talk. We talked about it constantly. We'd because be people were always it.
2: asking. You. Yeah.
1: And because I think we were just like, do we want to do that? If we did do that, what would it look like? You know, we just it's not like we didn't think about it or talk about it, like it wasn't on our radar. I think sometimes there can be this idea that if you are choosing not to have children, you just haven't really thought about it enough or given it enough consideration. When most people I know who were consciously making that decision, it's one of the things they talk about the most and think mm. about the most because it is such a huge decision. So yeah, we'd spoken about it a ton and then got to this place where it was an almost, and then it was just a, like almost There's a, a physical crossing of the legs. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> wow. um, yeah. And I think he was quite relieved. I think I was probably quite relieved. And um, just kind of went on with our lives. We'd moved to New York by that point. I was building the Numinous. I probably had just got my first book deal, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's almost, it's interesting. Like I was approached by a publisher and it was something I'd always wanted, but never, um, I sort of didn't think I was smart enough or had the right connections or I just didn't really think that it would happen for me I was happy to do my journalism and blogging and writing that way but it's interesting about literally six months after I it had finally pulled up the drawbridge and been like that's a no let's just forget about it um this book deal kind of showed up and I do believe I was talking to someone about that this morning I think sometimes when you're on the fence about something definitely when you're actually able to finally go a yes or a no either way particularly with a no it does open another the door, door yeah for something else to come in well it's like one door closes and exactly mm-hmm.
2: how have you found it sort of navigating the world because when we talked about it last night at the panel it was really the first time that I've engaged in that kind of conversation that topic just solidly and there are so many layers mm. to it and so much emotion for people and I I understand that this is a a tricky subject to navigate Mm. because, you know, there are some people that desperately want children and can't, Mm -hmm. and so to even say, I choose not to, feels like a revolutionary thing. I can imagine that there are some people that want to sort of shame that. So what has been your kind of internal journey of kind of reconciling that and finding peace in it?
1: Well, I suppose on the one hand, I'm really, I'm so grateful to have been able to pursue a career that feels more like a vocation like it's a, true I have a career you. but really honestly it's just an expression of who, what I am as an expression of who I am and I feel what I am what, what, what I you do, do what I do is an expression of who I am right yeah. and I'm so grateful that I get to do that you know and had parents who really actively and enc- never pressurized me to do anything that they wanted me to they never mm-hmm. they never said, we want you to be this, or we want you to do that, or it would be a good idea if you tried this. And the same goes with having kids. They never pressured me, or asked me when the grandchildren were coming along. Or They both seemed a little sad when I kind of informed them that it wasn't going to be happening, it wasn't something that I was actively planning for. But more, they seemed a bit sad for me, which mm-hmm. I'll take as a good sign, because it means they obviously did enjoy having me as a child. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they enjoyed being parents aspects of it anyway um but yeah i feel really grateful to have been raised in a family where i was given the freedom to actively of a family and a culture at Mm -hmm. a time and in a country (laughs) where these things were available to me as somebody born with female reproductive organs organs this is not the case for many women Mm -hmm. in cultures in the uk but also around the world you know we don't women don't have these kinds of choices the kind of freedom to self to to, to enact self-authorship when it comes to how we want to live our lives and how we want to express ourselves and these sorts of things so I'm really incredibly grateful for all of that but in terms of other people's criticism of it I suppose one of the reasons there is any well there hasn't been a huge amount actually and it makes me think that I think depending on the kind of culture that you're living in there are degrees, like I touched on it last night, You know, I've lived in London and New York, which are very progressive cities and I've moved in very kind of open-minded liberal, liberal circles. People have been largely, there's been very kind of live and let live attitude about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I haven't had a huge amount of pushback, but I know that plenty of other women, even starting with their family of origin, <laughs> um, and then the culture that they're part of, um, the place of work, like, there can be a lot of misunderstanding. And so, yeah, I'm I'm hopeful. One of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to create some language and to really point out that there are actually so many valid reasons not to be a mother. So Africa Brooke was on the panel last night and she was sort of saying, but why do I need a valid reason? Why can't I just not want to be a mother? Yeah. And you can, absolutely you can. That is a valid reason. Just yeah. not wanting to is a valid reason. But I have found, and I found it with quitting drinking, the more secure I can get in my own understanding of why this is right for me, the less threatened I feel, or the less likely I am to cave in to peer pressure or to be swayed by other people's opinions. So I wanted to write this book to join a lot of dots actually, between why so many, there are so many more women without kids, whether it's by choice, whether it's due to infertility or whether it's by circumstance, like childless by circumstance is probably the biggest cohort of people who don't have children. And what does that mean? So it describes um, a situation where you possibly thought you would have kids mm-hmm. or you might like to, perhaps you're not fully sure yet, but circumstances whether due to finances not finding a suitable co-parent leaving it too late or leaving it too late not being in a work situation where you could feasibly sort of like take the time out to do it not being able to not being able to reconcile how to do the work you want to do and also have a family like these kinds of circumstances are the the reason most people are either choosing not to have children or are just unable to kind of make it work and find them in themselves in a position where it just hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. But again, the better an understanding I have of why I'm in the situation I'm in and why the choices I'm making are the right choices for me, even though some of them might be really hard choices, the better able I am to withstand or not be swayed by yeah, other people's opinions or to... Yeah, the, the less lost I feel in it, you know? Yeah. And what was
2: the process of actually writing this book like? Because I know you've spoken to me about it and you said that it was a very emotional one. What was the kind of internal journey like? Because obviously you're reliving a lot of those things. You're having to really go to the depths of some of the things you must have felt and experienced over that time.
1: I actually had just been really pulled from a creative perspective to write something that felt a bit more memoirish Mm -hmm. I'd read some really great memoirs that had just been really enjoyable to read Mm -hmm. as much as they had been informative like sort of more teaching memoirs and I was drawn to write a book that had more of that kind of a feeling so I knew I wanted to use my personal story as a kind of an entry point into all of the different social and cultural political economic environmental factors that had influenced my feelings about being a mother and that are influencing well honestly this this drop-off massive drop-off in the birth rate globally the birth rate's been declining really steadily and quite steeply for about the past 100 years um, with every new census that comes out in the U.S. showing sort of steeper drop-offs but the birth rate's dropping all around the world like I think South Korea has the lowest birth rate. Places like Japan and China have a very low birth rate. Lots of Western European countries. Um, But even in places like Africa, where the population is still growing, individual women are having fewer children. So the, the replacement rate is like roughly two children per woman. As one example, if a country in Africa, maybe women used to have like seven or eight children. Now they're having like four or five. So the population is still growing. But it's slowing down and individual women are having fewer children. And so this is the global trend, even in countries where the population is still increasing. And from increasing. your research, why is that happening? Well, that's that's what the journalist in me was interested mm-hmm. in diving into with this book. Because I knew that I was ready on a personal level to really dig into my very personal whys and present it in this memoirish ish Way where I chart my development from, as I describe it in the book, from girl to woman to non mother. But then I sort of, I'd always really felt like the odd one out, like I was the only one who didn't want to have kids. But then reaching my early 40s, I began to notice in my peer group, there are actually lots of other women without kids. And we might have all different reasons and stories, but here we are without kids. And then zooming out even further, looking at this global shift in the birth rate. Well, this is women everywhere. Women everywhere are either having far fewer children or having no children at all. And that's what's driving this drop off in the birth rate, which is completely and radically reshaping our societies around the world. So it's huge scope, actually. (laughs) But of course, all of the factors that are influencing our personal decisions about whether to have children, how many children to have, under what circumstances and who to have children with they're the same factors that are influencing this global drop-off in the birth rate because that global drop-off is actually reflective of millions and millions of incredibly personal, very nuanced and often very conflicted decisions Mm -hmm. about this subject on the behalf of individual women. So the personal and the universal are very intimately connected here and that's what I do in the book. I use my memoir to open up a discussion about these bigger forces that are actually shaping all of our lives we're all a product of our environment to an extent you know it's that question of nature over nurture right I think it's really hard to kind of pick those two apart but um we are absolutely influenced by our environment And and what are some of those factors then we touched on a few already like economic factors it's just become harder and harder for people to square living a comfortable life where they feel like they have enough with having children that's just become available to a smaller and smaller segment of society then you look at what why is that well wages have stagnated like since the 1970s while profits for industry have actually soared but it's only a very few people at the top of the food chain who are benefiting so widening income inequality is one reason and we also touched on this last
2: night you know women in the workplace and gender equality and how actually for as much as we progressed in many areas when it comes to having a child that's when everything kind of regresses back to the 1950s basically (laughs) and that's something that I I personally really connect with that particular Mm. point where it does feel that sadly having a child feels synonymous with a, losing some aspect of your here's life here's how i've
1: come to frame it and i don't i don't think i got to it quite this clearly in the book but it's in been having conversations about the book since it's come out mm-hmm. that i've been able to really kind of hone in on this but so much of the feminist movement has been about making women equal to men which has meant enabling women to live more like men yes and as soon as you become a mother, which is the ultimate feminine, feminine gender role, mm-hmm. that means a, a lot pretend, of privilege. Yeah. Ultimately, it just shows the extent to which we privilege masculinity in our society, whether it's masculinity embodied by biological men or biological women,
2: yeah.
1: masculine traits of independence, competitiveness, um, yeah. self-sufficiency Linear are thinking, rewarded. Building, yeah. Femininity has been left behind by feminism. And motherhood within that. And I think that's what we're seeing the fallout from now with so many women feeling so disenfranchised and so enraged, actually, by the fact that for all of the autonomy and freedom that the feminist movement has given them, as soon as they become mothers, that's swept away. Unless, unless they're incredibly well-resourced.
2: And then also from a different sort of angle, this is slightly dangerous subject but you can see how women are kind of have been occupying the masculine and leaning too heavily into that side perhaps and the consequences of that I think has led to quite a confused society in many ways Mm. and also a lot of men who feel displaced and angry Mm -hmm. you only have to look at the sort of Andrew Tate's of the world and think absolutely I think that's a reaction in many ways absolutely but like you said it's about not valuing the feminine like collectively yeah, and that's where we're really out of balance and I think if we don't and that really does tie into the way we approach mother earth absolutely the environment everything you know if we have this very strange disconnect from the world that we live in it's like this place that we we own or that you know
1: well that we extract from exactly that could be said for women's uteruses (laughs) Exactly. and as much as it can be said for the natural resources of the earth there's a fantastic book called Caliban and the Witch and for anyone who is a bit more into the sort of mystical metaphysical sort of side of these kinds of conversations it's a really fascinating book it shows how in the transition to capitalism following or in the lead up to the industrial revolution women's reproductive services shall we say were kind of lumped in with All of the other earth's natural resource something to be extracted from to be utilized to build industry and build profits like ultimately capitalism and the industrial revolution requires a constant influx of fresh human labor power you know Mm. and so that's when a lot of the ideology i think that says womanhood is synonymous with motherhood came to be indoctrinated with this sort of ideology I suppose
2: yeah and also it's hard to even imagine but this isn't always the way society function I think because just in our lifetimes we don't know any different but actually this has been something that's happened over a period of time
1: hundreds of years and many many generations too many generations for us to really be able to like know the -hmm. roots of it particularly as it pertains to us as individuals but the reason the book is called Caliban and the Witch is that Federici who's a you know a feminist scholar and it's a very scholarly very well researched documented book she talks about how the witch trials of the sort of 15th 16th and into 17th century were a genocide of women who refused to kind of get with this newly minted sort of reproductive program you know women who refused to marry knew how to work with the cycles of the moon and how to work with herbs to control their reproduction women who knew how to enact safe abortions for example were deemed witches and removed from society persecuted murdered and deemed deviant and that creates a of the feminine wound as well, Absolutely. doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. This is, I mean, these were our ancestors ultimately, particularly as like European women. This is our history and the book lays it out so clearly. And I think it's one reason why women without kids are still seen as so taboo because the legacy of that history is still alive in us. It's mm. in our history. If you think about it in a sort of more modern lens
2: today, it's a personal feeling that I have anyway of For the first time I feel like I have quite a lot of autonomy, I can create my own life and luckily, like you, it is an extension of who I am, my career is very much so, so I'm very grateful for that, but then the idea of having kids suddenly feels like it puts me, that I lose some of my power. You
1: lose privilege because being more like a man gives you the privilege that men have. That's what feminism fought for, for women to have the same privilege as men. And so yes, becoming a mother entails a loss of privilege. Which is why I think we have these kind of like really sentimentalised things. of Like Mother's Day. Let's celebrate mothers to kind of make up for the fact that you no longer have any freedom or say over how your life plays out. And you're not going to get paid for your labour anymore. You're just going to be expected to perform your child rearing as a labour of love. Because guess what? The economy requires that too. If companies had to pay women to raise children so that they would have employers to pay taxes no one would be making nearly as many profits yeah and this is (laughs) i'm not the thing is i'm not i get a bit uncomfortable talking about this because i'm not an economist i'm not a political scientist this is just you know my journalistic research has helped me to join these dots well i think it's also an
2: accurate observation i mean you know to actually (laughs) change systems that have been in place for such a long time that really are about profit
1: and it's interesting that I even just made that comment it's almost like I don't feel like it's my place yeah because I haven't studied these things in depth in college like I haven't like got a degree in kind of political science or economic science or whatever but actually this is like power to the people this is like us just as individuals use it like joining the dots looking at what's going on and saying wait a minute Is this happening? Is this supposed to be happening? What if we did this? Like we should be able to discuss these things (laughs) whether or not we've got them quote unquote right just for the sake of discussing it and picking it apart and saying, is this working? Doesn't feel like it's working. Why isn't it working? And if we don't
2: question it, it's never going to change. But in a sort of dystopian world, (laughs) because I feel in many ways we're living in one, so why not think this way? What could be a solution? What would need to shift?
1: Basic things. I I live in the US. Free healthcare would help a lot. Mm-hmm. Paid paternal leave, paid maternity leave, paid paternity leave. Most um, companies are not obligated to give yeah. people any kind of paid leave um, when they. The
2: US is much worse. Yeah, much
1: worse. And it's interesting. You say things like that, but then even in countries where those policies are in place, people are still having fewer children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so things like this. But also. Okay, looking at um, fairer wages, fairer distribution of profits, fairer taxes of corporations and the ultra rich to pay into better social services, better mental health services for people. Like there's just so much that could be done to support people in there being less of a focus on work and honestly survival and more Mm -hmm. focus on like connection and family formation and creativity and all of these things I think would make it easier or would make... Focusing on family life more appealing. The other thing is, like, I discovered this statistic only recently. So since the book has come out, but it took three hundred thousand years for the human population on the planet Earth to reach one billion in eighteen hundred, and so it's only like two hundred and twenty years later. We're now at eight billion. So the population has absolutely ballooned, exploded, yeah. exploded in the past. 200 years, which is not very long. And this coincides obviously with massive advances in modern medicine. We're able to extend human lifespan. Far fewer wars being fought on the battlefield, far fewer women dying in childbirth, far fewer children dying in infancy. But we've made so much progress in terms of quality of life that we've almost now got too many people. (laughs) And I sometimes feel like the fact that people are just saying, you know what, I just want to enjoy my life we have now so much more comfort ease health well-being than our ancestors could even expect to have in their lives and I think people are just saying this is great I just want to enjoy this thanks don't Mm. feel the need to just like create loads of new people I don't know it's just there's something in that as well you know (laughs) and you think that
2: that's just quite a natural evolution in a way that it's yeah in a way recognizing that we don't actually need to pass on our genes quite so much
1: right well the, i mean people used to have very big families because it was recognized that you would probably lose several of your children in their early childhood often siblings were given the same names because it was recognized that one or two of them would probably die yeah. and that was the fact that was, those were just the facts of life that's not the case anymore and so i think another big part of this conversation is like a real re-evaluation of what a human life is worth and what a human life is for is a human life for survival for its economic capacity or is a human life for enjoyment pleasure ease connection these are huge questions but I think they're all part of this conversation
2: you know Mm. and for someone that might be listening that's kind of having these questions or these thoughts about motherhood for themselves obviously you know we encourage them to read the book but Mm. what would your advice be for them that are struggling with these thoughts and feelings I can
1: talk to people about it like someone commented right at the end of the event last night she was like I don't have children I've chosen not to have children it's some it's a choice I think about every day as in how is is this the right choice how is this going to play out over the course of my lifetime and she's like this being here tonight is making me realize I never talk about it this is central to who I am it's central to my life And I never talk about it because we don't have this conversation because it is still such a given that Mm -hmm. becoming a mother is what you will do eventually and what is the natural thing to do. The best advice I can give people is just talk about it. Because equally, I've met people who I've had these kinds of conversations with and they've realized as a result, I actually really do want to have children. I really do want to be a parent. And that's made them really get real about, is the career path I'm following conducive to that? Mm could I be living somewhere as a city I'm living in conducive to me my, meeting a person that I might want to do this with mm-hmm. like just making really big important grown-up life decisions about if this is something I want yeah. then maybe I need to make some changes so like, I just want to point out as so I'm by no means am I recommending not having kids yeah. like this is right it's for something me to really think it's incredibly about. personal
2: and also what you said about you know the majority of people what was it that they it was circumstantial this by
1: circumstance Child. is the kind of yeah. terminology that gets used yeah yeah
2: and I've got plenty of friends that didn't really think about it have conversations about it were quite indifferent and then suddenly were like actually I I do think I might want to have children but I haven't met my partner or mm. whatever and basically just left it too late yeah and they say to me they're like whatever you feel about it just make sure you Do the things you need to do Mm -hmm. to put yourself in a position that you have the choice as long as you can if that's Mm -hmm. if it's something that you might want rather Mm -hmm. than letting, you know, because the very real thing is that biological clock piece. It's very real. Yeah,
1: it is. There's a whole chapter in the book really about the twin concepts of acceptance and regret. And I mean, ultimately, I, I land on the place where there's no such thing as a life without regrets all we can really hope for is a life where we got to do majority of the things that where the majority of the things that we do are things that we want to do and that feel good and that feel right for us and that help us to contribute something useful and all of the things that make life feel good mm-hmm. <laughs> um but yeah there's always going to be we're never going to get all the things we want I don't really think it's possible to have it all and I do think that that's something that I don't has know become if I very agree. Apparent.
2: really I think it is <laughs> I think it is possible to have it. I don't know. I kind of had a similar I mean, a conversation with my therapist about this very theme, actually, to be completely transparent. Mm. And I was like, you know, I, I do feel I want motherhood at some point, but I also want these things, and I don't know how I can have both. She was like, well, why not? Who tells you you can't mm. do both? Mm. And that in itself felt revolutionary and harder perhaps to do. And I, I recognize that I'm in a, a position of, privilege that I can mold my career around that a little bit more than a lot of people can but equally
1: I think we can I think the whole concept of having it all has really become synonymous with having a for women having a career and having children yeah and I think for a lot of people that's really really hard. hard yeah and something is always
2: suffering there's, a, in there's a way, some yeah. there's
1: always some compromise and often what's compromised is your personal needs personal space yeah. personal time and for some people that's less tolerable than for others yeah as somebody who is very introverted who needs a lot of alone I mean, time so am I. Yes. I really need to be able to make my own schedule which sounds in, again incredibly privileged and it's something that I've actually worked very hard and made a lot of quite important decisions to be able to facilitate for myself. And so um, again, this comes down to having the conversations. So you really know, okay, if I do want to have a career and a child, I'm going to have to get very strategic about putting the right structures in place, place. reaching out, finding the right support, like proactively building my life to support that the more consciously we can enter into anything that we do in our lives the better we can prepare ourselves for it and sort of set things up. And I think crucially, I touched on get the support that we need. One thing I really touched on or that really came clear in the book is that like, once you have dependents, you need other people that you can depend on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been really eroded by the way that so many of us now live quite far away from our families, yeah. of like our parents, for example. we Lacking
2: community massively. Yeah.
1: Massively, COVID obviously accelerated that, but we were on that trajectory already with advances in technology that are all designed just to make life so uber convenient that you literally don't need to interact with another human being ever. <laughs> I mean, you literally don't at this stage. Yeah. Once the majority of your resource in terms of time and energy and finance honestly is being put into caring for other small human beings who don't have the capacity to contribute you need other people putting resources into you Mm -hmm. and that's really lacking yeah well such a big subject such a big subject i mean
2: time has flown by i think (laughs) that is what we have time for today, ruby thank you so much
1: well thank you thank you for coming back yeah it's great to be back
2: and I'm super <laughs> excited about your book thanks. and for everyone to read it and congratulations on putting it out into the world
1: thanks again
2: thank you so much for listening
0: to this episode of saturn returns with myself and ruby if you want to find more about her you can find her at rubywarrington.com, and don't forget to pick up a copy of her latest book women without kids And also, for those that do not know, because I'm not the best self-promoter, we have launched the Saturn Returns course, and it is currently on sale for £98. It was £228, so this is a massive discount. And this is a seven-week course that really allows you to delve deep into all the lessons and principles that come up during your Saturn Return or any visit from Saturn, essentially setting you up with a foundation so that you can live a life from a more truthful authentic place and get to the core of what you're really about the things that light you up the aspects of yourself that perhaps you denied and in this course there's a combination of video workbook content and audio meditation it's everything that i needed In my late 20s early 30s and i put it all together in a course for you guys and of course i am the one guiding it and created the whole thing so i'm very very proud to put this project out into the world and seeing so many of you getting it honestly brings me so much joy because i love helping you guys with what you're navigating So if some of the themes from the podcast resonate with you across the seasons, but you want to kind of delve a little deeper and you need support in doing that, please check out the course at saturnreturns.co.uk. We have all the information on the website about it, so you can get everything you need from that. And thank you so much for listening. As always, remember, you're not alone. Goodbye.